Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Antonio Neves, and welcome to episode 41 of the Best Thing Podcast. Let me ask you a question. What would happen? How would your life change if you were diagnosed with a brain tumor? And then imagine if you had to undergo neurosurgery. What would your outlook on life be moving forward? Well, that's exactly what my guest, Natalie Frank, had to go through. And in this episode, a truly powerful episode, Natalie talks about how this diagnosis of this brain tumor radically changed her life. I can't wait for you to hear what she has to share, her perspective, and where she is today. But before we get into this powerful episode, as always, I want to hear from you about the show. I want to hear guest recommendations. You can text me at any time at 310-564-7124. That link is in the show notes. Also, something brand new is happening. There is now a Best Thing Facebook group where you can go sign up and we're going to have some cool discussions about the episodes and other topics that I think you're going to dig. The link to that brand new Facebook group for the best thing is in the show notes. Go over there, become a founding member. I'm excited to create awesome value for you in there. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Don't forget to take a moment to review this podcast. And of course, I would greatly appreciate it if you're willing to share the love of the Best Thing podcast with your friends and community. Okay, let's get into episode 41 of the Best Thing podcast with Natalie Frank. Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm a speaker, author, and coach. And each week I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. This week's guest is someone I met via a previous guest on the podcast, Jess Ekstrom. And let me tell you something, when Jess recommends someone, I listen. Natalie Frank is an entrepreneur writer, speaker, community builder, and I love this, neuroscience nerd. As one of the founders of the Rising Tide Society and the head of community at HoneyBook, she leads tens of thousands of creatives and small business owners while fostering a spirit of community over competition around the world. Natalie Frank, welcome to The Best Thing. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. And I got to say, as I did research on you and I learned more about you, I really pride myself on being the journalist who I am. I'm really good at connecting dots, reading, finding things that are left unsaid. And what was wild as I was researching you across your website, social, et cetera, is that you do not fit in a box. I take that as a compliment. Thank you. 100%. Like you do not fit in the box when society says you have to focus, you only have to do one thing. It's look, it looks like you just gave a backslap to whoever gave that advice. Can you tell me just about your approach to, to life and why maybe you've been unwilling to, to fit in the box that society says you must fit, fit into? Oh, well, you kicked it off with such an easy question. I just can't even, no, I'm joking with you. That's that's a deep <laughs> philosophical one. Um 
Look, I, I think my philosophy truly stems from the belief that, um, so it's two things, truly. One, that life is short. A lot of us hold on to that or have experienced something in our life that reminds us of that, that shifts our perspective on that. It's the first thing that life is short. Um, and second, you know, that my job on this planet is to make an impact for the next generation. That is kind of how I look at the work that I do, the importance of the work that I do, and the focus being not so much on what I gain in this lifetime, but really the legacy that we leave behind. What is it like for others after we're gone? Um, and truthfully, that's, I mean, look, way back when, when I was in high school, I picked up a camera and I actually started photographing weddings um, at that period in time in my life. And on, on the outside looking in, it kind of could be like, oh, you know, you're taking pictures at somebody's wedding. Like how deep could that really be? And yet for me, again, that that was just another realization that this visual history that we document in people's lives, it is a legacy. When, when life goes on, all we have are photographs left of the people that we love. Um, and I know very deeply that the work I did for 10 years as a full-time wedding photographer in 100 years from now, you know, those images are going to be held by children and grandchildren that can look back on this legacy of love that started at a wedding that started in that moment where two families became one. And so whether it's picking up a camera and documenting an important moment in somebody's life or building a community that creates relationships and connection and fuels ec like economic growth or um, somebody's entrepreneurial journey and actually helps them to generate wealth in their family and, and change the trajectory of their life. Both of those for me have always been about you know, understanding that life is short. I've got to use the talents that I have that God gave me. And two, that it's really about what I can do for others and that legacy that's left behind. So that's my philosophy yeah. in a nutshell. That's amazing. And I know community is such a big uh, part of who you are and what you do. We'll talk about that in a second. But I would like to mention, because I didn't mention this in the intro, but you just mentioned it being a wedding photographer. Yeah. Uh, I'm really curious for you what being a photographer taught you. Because mm -hmm. of course, you play such a critical, crucial role in so many events, whether it's a wedding or something else. But in many ways, photographers also have to be inconspicuous. They have to be behind the scenes. It's as much as it is about them because they're capturing a moment that's going to last a lifetime. They kind of want to be uh, invisible as well. So I'm curious what you learned in those years, your key takeaways. I learned that the perspective of the image maker is critical in creating the image. I think sometimes we might think that in anything that we do that's creative, whether you're a photographer or a designer or a writer, that it's sort of this clear lens through which you see the world, that it's not influenced by your own experience or your own philosophy or your own levels of empathy. But I actually found that as a photographer, you know, I truly try to see the world almost, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. My husband would tell you it's my greatest weakness and also my greatest strength. But I believe that there is good in every human. I really do. Not saying all people are good, but I believe that there is good within all of us. And so when I approach somebody um, as a photographer, and yes, inconspicuous, whether you're a photojournalist trying not to be seen, or I was more hands-on in my approach to photography, um, I, I really tried to capture people the way that I saw them, you know, the extraordinary way that I saw them. And that means the love that they had, or when I would photograph seniors in high school, for instance, like I wanted them to feel empowered and confident in their own skin. I wanted them to see themselves as powerful and remarkable and strong, to not um, worry about their insecurities, to not try to fit in, but instead realize that their differences are what make them extraordinary, right? That for me as a photographer was always really important. And when I would step into a room, whether it was for a wedding or a portrait session or documenting a family, I didn't know what they'd walked through to get there. 
Like I'd never know what experiences they've endured to get to the place where they are. But I knew that if I showed up and I captured them in a way that through my lens felt extraordinary and strong and empowered, then maybe just maybe they could look at that image and see that little glimmer of what I saw in them too. And so I think that this obviously applies to photographers. Anyone listening to this who is a photographer, I have no doubt can connect. But even in all all of these things that we do and we create, we bring our whole self to work. We bring our whole experience to the table when we show up and when we um, create or bring something into the world. And so that lens is changed, the way that we look through it and the product that comes out on the other side. I think all of that's beautiful. And you, and you said you want to make these folks feel empowered, mm-hmm. remarkable, strong. Could you talk briefly about, you know, I'm just thinking about self-image mm-hmm. and self-confidence and sometimes the way people view themselves is so different than how we see them. And my hunch is, again, like you said, the way I see them, my hunch is you've been able in your work to instill that confidence, let to empower people, to let them know they are remarkable, strong. Those things they perceive as blemishes are actually strengths. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, look, I think from the time we're very young, for many of us, we feel these pressures or Um, even these narratives from the world that tell us that we're not enough. You know, it can come from family members. It can come from media. It can come from um, within. Uh, But there is this narrative of unworthiness that often feels inescapable in this digital world, especially that we live in. When we're just confronted every day with all of the places we feel like we're falling behind or we're falling short or we're not measuring up to some unachievable, um, you know, goalpost of where we're supposed to be. And no one is exempt from this. No one. I've I've never met anyone that truly can say to me that never at any point in their life have they felt like they've struggled with self-worth or self-image or some understanding of who am I? It's sort of this great question that as human beings we approach, like who am I and 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 what do I have to offer? And so for me, you know, it really comes back to within all of us, and this is advice from my mom, who I, you know, we all think sometimes our moms are the wisest or that role model that's the wisest. I swear my mom is the wisest. And as a kid, I, you know, remember her time and time again telling me that, you know, my job was never to be the best, but it was to be my best. And there is a distinct difference, you know, and I, again, it goes towards community over competition as my mantra and what I champion, because the truth here is in this quest to feel good about ourselves and to love ourselves for who we are uniquely, that means understanding that there is not one definition of success, that there's not one measurement that tells us whether a person has this worthiness level that we are striving to achieve, right? Each human being is inherently worthy and valuable, regardless of any other context. It's not something that needs to be quantified or qualified. Like each human being is inherently worthy and valuable from the moment of their creation. This is something I believe fiercely. The moment you are created, you have worth and value and that can't be taken away by anyone or anything. And so to be your best or be the best really comes down to understanding that as you grow and evolve, you don't have to be like somebody else to be worthy and successful. You just have to be the best version of you. And that means knowing what you bring to this world, the gifts and talents that you have to offer, and also accepting that you know, your definition of success, your um, you know, journey that you're taking is going to be unique to you. And so I think that it's, it, it lands there. You know? It's like, don't compare yourself to other people and their journey. And also understand that um, you're creative for something unique. Like You're not meant to fit in. You're, you're meant to stand out. You're meant to be different. And And I believe that that's by design. I believe that's how it's supposed to be. 
First, uh, a lot of people are listening right now, and it's my inner monologue is saying amen and preach over and over again. We're starting this interview off strong, and I dig it. I know people are loving it as much as I am right now. And when people mention family and people that have meant a lot to them in their life, we got to say that person's name. So what's your mother's name so we can give her a shout out? Oh, Karen. Unfortunately, she's become a meme, but she's not a Karen meme. She's like the most genuine single mom you could ever meet in the world. She raised my sister and I, and... Um, she is a fierce, fierce, she works in medicine. She's kind of been, you know, throughout her life on the front lines of a lot of things, but she's a fierce believer in loving people well. Well, shout out to Karen for being an amazing mother, an amazing human being, for instilling that amazing advice in you. As you were talking, I was thinking about uh, the blue check mark on social media mm. that you see some people have on Instagram, mm. Twitter, et cetera. And I'll never forget a day I was giving a talk down in Georgia and the kid came up to me and asked me how you get the blue check mark. And I asked him uh, uh, why, and he said, and he says to, to basically said, well, to show that it's me. And I'm like, is there another you that I should be aware of? And I was like, why do you really want it? And he's like, to show that I'm important. Mm. And I said, and don't you know that you were verified the day that you were born? And no blue check mark can verify you. Don't ever get it twisted, please. That's a whole other conversation, but that's what came up to my in my mind while you were speaking. It's just that that power that we have from just who we are, regardless of external awards, accolades, how people think about us, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk a little bit about what, well, actually, I want to go here. Have Of course, I, I, I don't know you well, but what I see is a strong, powerful, empowered, confident woman. That's the perception I get of you just talking to you right now in this brief amount of time, what I see online. Uh, have you ever struggled uh, with any of the things that we just talked about. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, growing up, I was a nerdy kid. I was a, I mean, look, I'm still a nerdy kid at heart. Um, some things never really change. And it took me a long time to kind of love that about myself. Actually, like as you were reading the bio, you notice I throw neuroscience nerd in there. That is to own the fact that I love reading nerdy articles about the brain. I enjoy it. I've always enjoyed it. And I, I used to feel a little bit insecure about that. You know, I used to kind of, I don't know, feel like I, I didn't really know where I fit. I didn't really know where the place was where, you know, I could be my nerdy self and still have other interests and not fit into that box, right? Not be exactly the nerdy kid, but the nerdy kid who also is interested in community and loves to create and is sort of artistic and is a terrible athlete, but still tries. Like, who is that kid? And that was me growing up. And um, you know, actually what's interesting looking back, I been working on my book manuscript and I asked my mom, I said, like, you know, looking back at my childhood and my relationships, like, how would you describe me? And she said, Nat, you know, um, you were someone that was friends with everyone, but struggled to feel deep with anyone. And I think that really mm. shaped me as an adult where I started to acknowledge, like, because I struggled to feel that sense of depth and, and truly belonging as a kid, I stayed in the shallow end right? Like I never went into the deep end with people because I was so afraid of really just being me. Um, and I will say, thankfully, over the last few years and digging into community and going through some of the stuff I've had to go through, that's changed. But I also think it really shaped the way that I fight for community now, you know, and I don't know if anyone else relates to that, but just feeling like you've got a ton of great acquaintances, but like, who are those people on your hand that you can count that you go deep with? that like really know you and really love you, not for the curated you on the internet, not for the resume you that they download off your LinkedIn, but like the you that sits in the mud and the muck of what you've experienced and what you're walking through and what you're navigating, like that version of you. And so, yeah, 
I think I think that's kind of where I've struggled in my past. Yeah, as you're talking, uh, I'm sure you're relating to a lot of people who are who are listening right now, but you're speaking directly to me as well because I know exactly that where I can relate to a lot of people, a lot of different distinct communities of friends over the years, but never going super deep as you just described. Uh, and also the whole feeling of not fitting in, that that's just been a consistent theme over the course of my life. And then at some point you realize, like you said earlier, maybe you're not supposed to fit in and you can be awkward and you can have these weird interests, et cetera. And, that, and that's okay if you decide to go a different direction than everyone else is going. And yes, your family and friends may say you're going the wrong way, but when you realize it's your own way, that's okay. Yep. And, and that's enough there. So thank you for, for sharing that. Uh, Cause I think a lot of people, including myself need to hear that, you know, in, in your bio, but also in your work that you do, we talk a lot about uh, community. Mm -hmm. Could you talk to me a little bit about what, what rising tide is and also about how you, approach community building. And we can look from a business perspective, but we also can look from an individual perspective because let's be clear, as connected as we are these days, we're also extremely disconnected. And I think what would make us a stronger human species is more connection, more community, not less. So I'm curious about how you go about building community and just your, your overall thoughts on it. Absolutely. So I'll start with Rising Tide. You know, I, at the time of creating Rising Tide and co-founding our community, I was a full-time wedding photographer and I had finally made it. I had built the business. I had hit all of the success benchmarks that I, I set out to, to hit for myself. And I found myself feeling incredibly lonely. The best way I can describe it is, you know, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd sit in front of the computer. It's actually, oddly enough, parallels the COVID lifestyle that we've been experiencing as of late. Um, a lot of digital time, a lot of um, behind the computer time, and not a lot of, of interaction with others, like true connection, interaction with others. And I, I recognize that, you know, the, the weight of running a small business on my shoulders was incredibly heavy. And the only other people who would understand what it was like, the only other people who really knew um, how hard it was to start and run a business were other entrepreneurs. But we had a huge problem. We had a huge problem because, you know, within my community, small business owners, especially in my world, the creative and wedding and event space, they viewed one another as competition, right? Like they can't be in community with one another because they're always trying to one-up each other. They're, they see the world as sort of this scarce pool of resources. And there's this fear that if you get the client, I don't get the client. If you get the success, I don't get the success. You're nodding. I, this doesn't just apply to business. So many of us in our experiences with others in life can struggle with this feeling of competition. It can happen in our families, in our friend groups, as a new mom. It happens within moms. People are comparing where their kids' milestones are all day, you know? And um, you know, my son's talking now, my son's walking now, my kid's doing this. And you're like, Oh, my kid's not doing that. You know, we're falling behind or that level of competition. And that's how I experienced it. And, you know, rising tide was born out of trying to change that dynamic. Rising tide was born out of a mindset of community above competition, acknowledging that as human beings, you know, I, and I mentioned being, being a nerd on this, there, there is science of competition competitions in our DNA, right? We were built to belong as a species, but we were also created to compete. We have wiring within us that makes competition just very naturally a part of our survival instinct. And alone, competition is not necessarily a bad thing, right? It can increase sort of our, our um, sort of momentum and our ability to want to create and innovate and strive for more and do better and be better. But unchecked and in an unhealthy way, 
it can also lead to really detrimental things. And I've seen that in the small business world where people don't uphold business ethics because they're stepping on others to get to the top. They'll do things they never otherwise would have done in order to put themselves first. We've seen it in you know college admissions cheating scandals and athletes using performance enhancing drugs and like that level of competing at all costs and winning at all costs. Um, it really can start to degrade our feelings of connectedness and our ability to really connect um, and achieve together as a collective group. And so we started by just trying to transform that in in my hometown of Annapolis. That's where Rising Tide began. It was, you know, let's get some small business owners together over coffee. Let's talk about business. Let's support each other. And from there, over the last five years, it's blossomed. And now we have over 75,000 small business owners that are part of Rising Tide. We have over 400 meetups that are happening, um, both online and in person, for the most part right now online. But, you know, it, it grew and grew and grew, I think, truthfully, just from the fact that when you're facing something alone, it can be incredibly daunting and difficult. And failure is oftentimes feels eminent um, when you're the only one kind of trying to walk the journey. But when you take up that journey with other people, when you're surrounded by, in this case, other business owners that are walking it with you, when you're a parent and you're surrounded by other parents, when you're a mom, you're surrounded by other moms, when you're whatever it is, on a health journey or with other people pursuing a health journey, when you surround yourself with community, um, when those things get hard and they will get hard, you have people in your corner that can give you feedback, that can lift you up, that can you know, carry you, if need be, literally carry you through the darkest seasons of your life to get you to the other side so that you can keep pursuing your best. And so for me, that that's where my passion and community comes. I think it doesn't just apply to business. It applies to all aspects of our lives. But in a world that feels so disconnected, um, you know, we go back to what we were created for, and that is one another. Right, we belong to one another. We belong to community. That's that's how human beings um, are are created to engage with this world. So so many things jump up for me. First, kudos for building that community and how important it is. Just the, the reminder of community over competition is a great one. It made me laugh because I thought back to my, my TV days. I spent over ten years in New York City as a reporter and correspondent, and many times you'd go up against the same folks and you see them on a regular basis for the same job. And this competition was real. Or even before I got my first big gig. That person that you knew when they got that big gig or they landed the agent, you'd say something like, hey, would you be willing to introduce me to your agent? And, and you would they'd immediately be like, uh, no, I can't do that. It's like, we're different. I'm not going to hurt you. You're, you know, my success doesn't hurt your success, et cetera. Um, so what a great reminder not to do it alone. And, and as you know, that requires us being open as well, right? We have to be open. We have to be willing to share more of ourselves, share what's vulnerable, uh, open to receiving awesome feedback that sometimes may be hard to uh, hear, but it's critical. So I love that. So let's transition to our question of the podcast of the best thing. I like to talk to people about the, the best thing to happen to them that wouldn't necessarily be a traditional marker of success, like getting married, buying a home, having kids. All those things are amazing, but those things that wouldn't necessarily appear on a resume. So for you, What's one of the best things that has had a, a profound impact on, on who you are today? So this one might be a little bit strange. Um, and actually, I will in full transparency say I even emailed you before this and said, is it okay if I say that this is my best thing? Because I, I think at first glance, it might seem like one of the worst things that's ever happened to me. But you're like, nope, just speak your truth. Just do it. Just tell it. So here we go. Um, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me was being diagnosed with a benign brain tumor in my early 20s. 
When I was 22 years old, I just turned 22. I had um, just gotten engaged to my high school sweetheart, just graduated from Penn. I was building this photography business. Life was really going well in every way um, that I had ever dreamt. And I got this diagnosis from what felt like completely out of the blue, normal symptoms that I just randomly told a doctor about. And she kind of raised her eyebrow and said, Hey, let's look into that a little bit. And it led us kind of to finding that there was a mass in my brain. And, you know, it um, it changed everything for me. It changed absolutely everything for me. I really had to shift my priorities. I went on a journey for about five years of starting to tear down these walls that I had built up around myself. Um, this feeling that I had to look perfect on the outside, this fear of being vulnerable in public, this concern that as an entrepreneur and as a woman in business, I had to be so professional all the time that I could never let people in. I could never really be truthful about what I was walking through or what I was going through. It all slowly but surely just sort of eroded away. Um, you know, I was diagnosed at 22. A lot of life happened after that. My um, career continued to take off. I co-founded the Rising Tide Society. We were acquired by an amazing startup called Honeybook. I moved to the West Coast. Like life continued, um, and behind the scenes, I was I was struggling with um, this diagnosis. And the the diagnosis itself wasn't just the best thing. I think it was kind of what followed that, which was in moving to the West Coast and kind of getting to work in tech. I also got a brand new medical team at UCSF. And, um, you know, my, my medical team took a look at my years of records of this tumor that um, our plan of action was to keep monitoring until it was time for surgery or radiation or whatever needed to be done. And, um, you know, they took one look at my records and they basically told me, look, it's time to remove it. Like, you've got to go in for brain surgery. We've got to take this thing out um, to give you the best chance of quality life, to give you a chance of beating infertility. You're married. You want to have kids. Like, this thing's got to go. And I realized in that moment, and up until that point, I should say, um, as I kind of alluded to, I was very afraid to share about this. I kept it very, very private. Friends knew that were very close to me. Family knew. Um but outside of that, I had never once shared about my diagnosis. I went on and so in terms of social media, you know, we talk about the curated feed and how it's it, it's only half the truth in people's lives, what you see on the internet. In my case, it was absolutely half the truth. And it was the best parts of me, but never the real parts of me. And that all changed the moment that my neurosurgeon said it was time to operate. You know, that that wall that I had built, that need to feel perfect on the outside, to look perfect on the outside. The person that you've heard for the first half of this interview didn't exist prior to that date. Um, a lot of kind of all of these fears I had about being honest and being real and being judged for that or people pitying me for that or questioning my ability because of that, questioning um, you know, my, my um, capabilities because of that, all kind of came crashing down. And I made the decision that at the time made me nauseous to even think about, and it was to finally open up about my diagnosis and about my upcoming surgery, about what I was walking through. And, um, you know, I kind of experienced the other side of community for the first time. I went from building it for other people to desperately needing it myself, right? I went from like carrying other people through their small starts and hard moments and, and what they were creating to really like being knocked to my knees and going on short-term disability and needing help in every facet of my life from just living to um, people bringing us meals. So my husband didn't have to cook dinner in the months that followed my surgery to taking time away from work and 
um, needing help to keep things going in my business and keep things running in the community. And um, even just healing psychologically from, from that experience and kind of navigating who I wanted to be on the other side of this. The best thing that ever happened to me was being diagnosed with a benign brain tumor, learning that I didn't have to be someone else on the internet. I could be me. And also understanding that life, like I said, is incredibly short. And we have a choice in how we want to use this time that we have and the talents that we've been been given. And um, it really just put a lot of that in, into perspective for me. It, I don't know how else to say it other than that. It just kind of changed the person that I am and, and made me, I believe, I would hope to believe, a much better person and a, a more empathetic leader. And um, yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that on so many different levels. And a few things come to mind as you share that story. Uh, one, just on a really practical level, how important it is to get a second opinion, right? To, uh, we Sometimes we take certain things at face value, advice someone gives us, a diagnosis, a plan of attack, et cetera. And then you can sometimes get another team that can see things a different way that will be to your uh, your betterment. Second, what comes to mind is you were young while this was happening. You know, your brain is still, you're a neuroscience nerd. Your brain is still formulating at 22 years old, sure. et cetera. So the two areas I want to go on this is one, let's go here first. That's a daily stress on you, a daily anxiety, even though no one, it's like, for me, I equate it to like, there's a house you see from the street and all the lights are off, but you don't know there's a light on in the basement at all times, mm. constantly draining energy the same way. If you have an app running on your computer, that's minimized, but it's still taking up processing speed. So my hunch is this took up so much damn processing speed from you and who you are. So, I mean, a novel, a basic question, but how did you, if at all process anxiety? and stress during that time prior to the surgery? So truthfully, I became an expert in compartmentalization. Not the healthiest thing to do, but it's, it's what I did. In other moments in my life when I've, I've dealt with really hard things, um, I've, just, I've, I've learned that ability to kind of put it away. Now, I think that's part of the reason why being told when I was um, told that I needed surgery, it all kind of hit me all at once. I'll even share with you in writing the book, I, you know, I wrote a chapter of the book kind of in my book that's coming out next year talking about this a little bit in more detail. And when my editor went back through and read it, she's like, I don't understand why being told you need surgery was so much more devastating than being told you have a brain tumor. Like in reading this book, that was her feedback. She's like, in reading this, I can just tell how that surgery, surgery moment for you being told you're going to go in and have brain surgery, which just was life altering. The diagnosis was for you, it sounds like maybe not as much. And the truth behind that is I think because when I was diagnosed, that light in the basement, I made sure the shutters were closed. Like I kept, right? Like I kept the shutters closed so I didn't have to see the light. So I could go on with my life as much as I could, um, ignoring it. Or when I would have migraines saying, ah, it's just, it's just a migraine. It's, I, I compartmentalized certain aspects of my life. So I didn't really have to face the truth. And when I was diagnosed um, back then, it, it wasn't with an immediate call to action. There wasn't a, you have a diagnosis, we're going into radiation. You have a diagnosis, we're going into this type of treatment. It was, you're diagnosed, and truthfully, the best course of action is to monitor this thing from that team, from that medical team, um, which many benign brain tumor patients have gotten that exact advice. And, and for many, for the, their entire lives, they never need surgery, they never need to do anything. But it wasn't until I got that new team and they said, you need surgery, that suddenly those shutters just fell off the hinges and the basement light became my whole first floor. And I just think I, I needed to confront the reality of what I was walking through in a more realistic way. It wasn't, 
this theoretical metaphorical experience that I had that I could compartmentalize and tuck away into a dark place. It was going to affect the rest of my life. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. It answers, it answers, 100% answers my question. And there are some people listening right now that are like, Natalie is going to make me tear down these shutters <laughs> and let this light flood in because it's going to be so healing. And I, I know people are sedating right now because there are some things that may not be as, as, as real, as heavy as, as, as a benign tumor in the brain, but it could be something else that's on their mind and they're sedating and they're having an extra glass of wine when they don't need it. They're watching that third episode on Netflix. They are interacting with people they don't need to interact with to keep from feeling or experiencing that. So you're really touching people. I want to ask you a question. This may be a, this is a personal question and I don't feel free to uh, decline answering. And I'm curious what that does for uh, a marriage. Uh, for that relationship, because of course you said it was a high school sweetheart. Of course you guys know each other like the back of your hand. But my hunch is that creates a level of of intimacy, um, trust, etc. That some people have been married many, many years will never get to because it's just different. The first thing I said to my husband after getting my diagnosis was, "Do you really want to be with me?" Oh, I'm getting teary because. Um, one of the things that comes with that diagnosis is a diagnosis of infertility. Um, my tumor was located in a hormonal center of the brain. And so with that, my doctor was very clear that um, having children was definitely not a guarantee. Um, and even fertility treatment may not be able to help us expand our family biologically. And I didn't know what that meant for our marriage. I didn't know if that was a deal breaker for my husband. Um, and so that was truthfully one of the first conversations that we had. And funny enough, he just kind of laughed at me and said, are you kidding me? Like, I'm choosing you. I'm not choosing whatever comes. I'm choosing you. And and that means all of you. And, you know, like whatever that means, whatever we go through, we'll go through it together. And up until that point, you know, we had been together for six years through high school, through college. Um, and we were so excited to build, build our life together. And you know, it absolutely fundamentally transformed our relationship, not only the diagnosis, but the recovery experience. I mean, having to be a caretaker in your mid twenties of your wife when she's recovering from brain surgery and has complications and can't even, couldn't bathe myself for a couple of days. Couldn't, I mean, truly like for a period of time, um, I needed to be cared for in all ways. And my husband stepped into that role and filled that role and sacrificed I mean, so much over the years in general, but especially in, in that season. And so, look, I think um, that level of vulnerability, when you see somebody without the pleasantries of trying to pretend like they're happy or they've got it all together, but you see the brokenness underneath and you choose to love that brokenness and to be loved for that brokenness, there is something about that that... Um, I'll forever be grateful for, um, forever be grateful for. I mean, my husband is an extraordinary person. He really is. He, he is. I mean, look, he co he's, he's brilliant as hell. He co-founded the rising tide with me. He's been the biggest champion behind anything I've done in my career. He empowers me, um, in so many ways, but also, um, he has this strength that no one else gets to see, you know, when my life is falling apart and, I'm being told it, what should be the best season of my life that I'm going to face some really difficult chronic um, conditions as a result. I mean, he has constantly stepped into the gap to remind me of my own worth and my own value, like we talked about in the beginning of this. 
Um, and when I'm too weak, he carries me, you know, literally and, and figuratively. And so it strengthened our relationship. It, it made us so much stronger. And look, I'll say one more thing to this. Um, you know, right before you, you were saying like, there are a lot of people that want to rip the shutters off. Like they're listening to this and they're like, you know what? I've been doing this for my entire life. I've been, there's something that's always going on in the back of my mind that I'm struggling with that I'm trying to push away or I'm trying to hide or I'm trying not to deal with. Um, I want to say one more thing to that. I think that it is natural for us to not want to face the hard things. Um, we are risk averse. Our brains are risk averse. You know, we don't want to feel pain. We don't want to experience trauma. We don't want to have to walk through it. But there is a level of freedom that we can only experience when we have the courage to acknowledge the truth of our existence, when we have the ability to tear down the shutters and to, you know, face what we're afraid of head on and not just for us, but for our relationships, right? Because when we walk through something difficult, if we are constantly repressing it, if we are constantly sedating it, if we are constantly hiding from it, we can't really show up in the world as our true selves, right? We're showing up in the world trying to pretend like that part of us isn't real. And that affects how we engage with others in community, in our relationships, and how we look at ourselves in the mirror and truly feel about ourselves on the other side. When I finally shared about what I was walking through, the biggest emotional release that I had from it was freedom. It was like someone just took this weight right off my shoulders and threw it on the ground and was like, here's who I am. Here's what I'm really walking through. I'm not perfect. I'm broken. I'm struggling. Some days are harder than others, but this is me. This is really who I am. And I think in our personal lives and in our relationships and sometimes even in the professional spaces that we occupy as we grow into leadership roles and we work with people that are, that are striving to become the best versions of themselves too, when we have that ability to say, this is who I am, and we aren't afraid of who we are, it brings a new opportunity to the world and to ourselves to be loved for who we are oh. and to love others all the same. Oh, 100%. So many gems in what you just you share, just shared. You got me emotional in there. And it's fascinating as you were talking about your husband and you said the sacrifices that he made. For me, what I, I didn't hear sacrifice. I heard investment. The investments that he made in that marriage of him just pouring into you and loving you. So I get it. Sometimes sacrifice and investment can be synonymous. Uh, but I hear like just, no, I'm investing when he looked at you like, are you serious? I love that chuckle that he gave when you asked him if he wanted to wanted to do this. My last question for you is this. Uh, when I think about you and you said if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be who you are today. Uh, I think about, you know, you look at the, the course of history and you see uh, B.C. and A.D., right, before Christ, and et cetera. And uh, we can say uh, BT before tumor and after tumor for you. Some people right now are going through a challenging time and they actually think they've reached this destination. Natalie, what I've come to learn in my life is that sometimes what we think is a destination is actually a bridge to the next chapter, mm. to you, to happiness, to whatever you want to call it. So for that man, that woman that's listening to this, that may be experiencing that that challenge, they think they've reached a destination, that this is it. Could you talk to them about the possibility of that bridge being there for them? More than likely, it's just the beginning. I think, yes, a bridge is a beautiful metaphor. I also kind of look at it as um, a journey. There really is no destination. The destination is truly the journey, right? And And I think that we can also look at it from the, the standpoint of never wanting to stop growing and evolving and changing. Like the only day that I hope I stop growing, evolving and changing is the day that I leave this world for 
eternity, you know, that, that for me is the last moment that I will probably grow, change and evolve. I hope in my eighties, I'm still challenging myself and I hope I get to live that long, but let's just imagine the gray haired 80 year old version of you out there. I hope that in your eighties, you're still in some ways on a journey of becoming the best version of you, whatever that means. And I, I think, you know, as you're on that bridge, as you're on that journey to find the reasons to be grateful for it, it is so hard when you're on it. You know, I, um, I shared with you, Antonio, we were earlier in here that we're going through another round of infertility treatment. And this time um, it's demonstrating to us just how much of a miracle my toddler is because um, it has not, it was not easy before and it has been even harder this time. And um, I've really struggled um, with my mental health in this part of, of my life. I've really struggled on the infertility side. I've really, really struggled. And my husband said to me, he said, Nellie, you're not going to make it through this if you focus on why it's hard. The only way you're going to make it through this is if you focus on what you're grateful for, even though it's hard. And he's right. I didn't want to hear it, by the way. I really didn't want to hear it. I was like, but it's hard. He goes, I know it's hard. He's like, but you need to look around and see these reasons to be grateful because otherwise you're not going to have the stamina to keep going through, keep pushing through, keep moving forward, keep on the journey, on the bridge to the person that you are becoming. And um, that's the only way I've been able to push through any of this, right? Is to find those reasons to be grateful when you're in the darkness or, or on the bridge or, you know, you're like, I hope I'm hope I'm done with this hard season because I don't know if I could take any more. And I know this year for so many people, for so many different reasons has been that year of when will it be over? When will this be done? And waiting for the destination at which suddenly everything's okay again. And I think the only way that we move forward is by saying, you know, it, there's no such thing as normal. There's no old normal. There's no new normal. There's just this journey. And, and we can proceed by being grateful and, and digging into that. And one last thing I'll say, and it's, it's not as heartfelt, but it's more nerdy and scientific. Gratitude is not a fluffy thing. Whenever I say gratitude or talk about being grateful, you know, I think sometimes people kind of roll their eyes and they're like, oh, self-help, gratitude. Like I've heard it, Matt. I've heard it a thousand times over. But I want to be incredibly clear. Um, gratitude changes levels of serotonin and dopamine in the brain. Gratitude is a natural Prozac. It actually transforms right, our neurochemistry. When intentionally grateful, we change on a neurological level. And so this isn't something fluffy. This isn't something made up. This isn't make-believe. The human brain is wired to change in the presence of gratitude. So when you face the journey and it's hard, when it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight, or when you just wish you finally made it to the other side and you're at the destination, um, my, my best advice would be to root yourself in, in gratitude. Um, a nurse in the hospital said to me, a grateful heart is a magnet for miracles. And I've seen that time and time again in my life. Well, I can't thank you enough for reminding us to, to be present on this journey, to have gratitude and to, to, to be present and to, of course, lean into our community that are there for us. And all we have to do is ask. Natalie Frank, thank you so much for joining me on The Best Thing. When that book comes out, we're going to have you back on. Can't wait to talk about it. Thank you once again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.